Good morning. Good to see everyone out this morning. I thank you for the opportunity you've uh, given me to come out and uh, present a message here to you. And good weather that we're having, at least by by Chardon standards, if you will, and, and minor standards, especially compared to what we had last week. But uh, well, it is, of course, the winter season, and uh, 50 degrees seems warm, but uh, each day has its challenges. But as we as we say, each day uh, well, we should do what we can. So this morning, I want to base our thoughts on the shortest book in the Bible. And bonus points, if you can tell me what that is before I tell you. You're close. Let me say third John. Second. Second John. Third John is the second shortest book. And I believe the third shortest is Obadiah, and then it's Jude. And those are the, the one verse, uh, then Philemon. But anyway, Second John, the shortest book of the Bible. Second John is only 13 verses long. And it is a short letter to the church whom John refers to poetically and prophetically as the elect lady. You know, the first verse is the elder to the elect lady and her children. And we're going to focus our thoughts here about on verse, uh, the, the third verse here. Second uh, John, there's only one chapter, verse 3. And it says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. This idea, I mean, sometimes we just sort of pass over the beginnings of the letters of Paul and, and the others like John here. And we simply, we, we think, we need to get to the quote, quote, meat of the, of the letter. You know, we, we start with verse 4, I, rejo I rejoice greatly, and so on. But, of course, the entire scripture, all the Bible, every verse was written by inspiration. So grace and mercy and peace. Now, this is the time of year we often think about, back to, we need peace on earth, especially more now than, than other times. Well, grace and mercy and peace are from only ultimately from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we'll turn to Ephesians here. Keep that thought in your heads. But turn to Ephesians. We'll talk about a little, a little bit more about what we mean by grace. What is this idea of grace? We, we see, uh, we hear grace a lot, and we sing about it. The most. Well, we'll come back to that song in a little bit. The most famous hymn in the world is what probably. Number 250, we have the same books to try to the Number 257, Amazing Grace. Well, uh, we, sing a, we sing a lot about it, but what is it? And, well, how much do we need it? How much do we really need it? How much do we think about how, how much, how much, it's an odd sentence, how much do we really think about how much we need it? How much do we consider this? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Sorry, I'll go down to verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So those are, I'm bad at math, six or seven verses, but three times, three times in this short passage, grace is mentioned. Grace is important. I mean, it's, it flatly says this. And what is the grace, though? It is by the grace of God that anyone is saved. Now, I see you have your, of course, you talk about your list you have up there on the window back there about the things that families need and families want and so on. Well, what we all need, regardless of how physically well off we are, young or old, rich or poor, what we all need, as we see here, is grace. We all need grace. Graces should be on our must-have list in December and in March and April and August and any other month of the year. But what is grace? Now, you might have heard the classic definition, if you will, the classic definition that people tend to repeat, that preachers tend to repeat, which is it's unmerited favor. And that's true in the sense, but sometimes we lose track of what, we get sidetracked by the word favor, like, you know, I owe you a favor and so on. You were nice to me. You praised my Kent State watch. Therefore, I owe you a favor. No. Favor in this sense is much more than just, well, owing someone something. It's more, it's more like we have forgiveness. We have access that we would not otherwise have into, into, uh, into God, into God's, uh, into God's, well, goodness. But I'll tell you a story that, uh, that illustrates this. It's an article about an advertising fiasco back in 1989. Some people, by the way, before we do the story, some people get this idea that we're entitled to it. Well, I deserve grace, don't I? Now, as odd as that sounds, as much of a contradiction as that sounds like, some people have that attitude. Well, I'm a good person. You know, what was it? It's the quote Christmas season. So, you know, if you're good this year, Sandy will bring you presents. Well, some people have that idea when it comes to God. Well, I'm a good person. Therefore, God owes me stuff. He owes me salvation, essentially. So let me tell you that story, keeping that in mind. The sense of entitlement that too many people have. So here's a story about what happened in 1989. So on Sunday, June 11th, 1989, Kraft, that's the makers of you know cheese and cheese products. So Kraft ran a sweepstakes ad in two cities, in Chicago and Houston. The ad carried a picture of, you know, there's a picture, they cut it in half, half a minivan, of half a minivan. So packages of Kraft American cheese singles that people buy and they melt and put on cheeseburgers and so on, they had pictures of half minivans. And they said, well, buy our cheese, obviously. And if the picture in your cheese package matches, you know, the half of your van matches the half of the of this van, of the, of the van that's, you know, in the ad, well, then you're going to win a minivan. There were other prizes, too, by the way. 500 bicycles, 500 skateboards, and 8,000 packages of cheese. But the contest odds of winning the minivan were supposed to be 15.2 million to one. 15.2 million to one. So, okay, this is Sunday. So the ads go out. The cheese is packaged. It's shipped to the stores on Sunday, June 11th. On Monday, June the 12th, uh, the corporate executives found there was a printing error. 100 minivan winning tickets have been placed in the already shipped cheese. In all, there were over 500,000 winning pieces already in the marketplace. Whoopsie. 
It would cost the company millions of dollars to honor all these tickets. And an extra and, and, and about $5 million just to pull the, she, the cheese off the shelves. Not to mention the bad publicity. So what to do? Kraft offered $250 to every person who had a winning minivan ticket and planned a drawing for only four, for only four minivans. Instead of you know guaranteeing you minivan, well you got a winning piece, so it puts you in a drawing for one of four minivans at the end of the contest. And the company announced its solution by the end of the week within the same newspapers that it had foolishly offered its ad in the first place. And so, fair enough, isn't that? The executives at Kraft thought the issue was solved, the matter was resolved. Well, this is the United States. And I teach politics, and among other things, I teach the courts. What do you think happened? Oh, thank you, I heard it. Lawsuits. There were lawsuits. Two people, I'm surprised it was only two, to be honest. Two people filed lawsuits against Kraft Foods. The customer insisted, one of them said, I quote, I want my minivan. I bought their cheese, and now I want the minivan I want. We're not greedy, are we? We talked a little bit about, a little bit about that attitude in Bible study. What an attitude of greed over a mistake. The company had apologized and given out prizes to people whom they really owed nothing, technically, but a package of cheese. The American cheese is what they had bought, and they had gotten it. The company did not owe the customers anything else, yet some people did not see it that way. The courts... Ruled, about, ruled in favor of craft. You don't get your minivan. But too many people think they're entitled. They thought in 1989, they think in 2023, that they're entitled to freebies from everyone and everything, from companies, from the government, and from God. A hundred years ago, the government started programs which gave government commodities to needy people in schools. Free cheese, butter, peanut butter, rice, and pasta were shipped to schools and community places. This food was given away. Now, this is the United States again, so what do you suppose people did? Complained about it. They complained about it. Well, they didn't get to pick out what they wanted. And they were ashamed to be seen getting a handout. And so the system changed, and so we don't call those giveaways anymore. Now they're Entitlements. Entitlements. And his article, the guy who wrote the article about craft and such, uh, he said there are some people who, if they could, they would, they would take God to court. They would sue God so they could pick the way they want to be saved. They think that heaven's an entitlement. Now, I quote this because you've all seen it. It's the holiday season. What's, the move, what's one of the movies that is going to be shown until you're sick of it on TV? Home Alone 2. And in that film, well, uh, one of the most, for me at least, one of the most infamous lines in movie history, there's a line in the movie, from the old woman to our, our hero, the kid, Kevin, she says, did you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? That's what she said. The scripture does not say that, but she says that. She says, do you know that a good deed erases a bad deed? Well, what are we just reading Ephesians? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But Kevin says, well, it's getting pretty late. I don't know if I'll have time to do all the good deeds I need to to erase all the bad ones I did. That's the world's attitude. I've done good stuff. 
I deserve good stuff. I have done good things. I deserve salvation, don't I? Some people, of course, take that a step farther and say, I'm a human being who's lived and breathed and processed oxygen. Therefore, I'm entitled to heaven. God should just save everybody, regardless, unless you're especially a bad person. Especially, then, then, of course, there are various methods of getting around that, like purgatory and sets of people have invented. But all this, of course, is wrong. The familiar parable will turn to, uh, actually, while you're turning, go ahead and turn to Isaiah. If you think that, Isaiah 64, sorry, Isaiah chapter 64, if you think, and I think if we think, if we think that we're good enough, that our good deeds can erase our bad ones, I suggest that you and me, I suggest we, remind ourselves of Isaiah chapter 64. But also what you're trying there, think about the other thing, other passages, like the familiar parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee thought God owed him something. And he said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I don't do this and this. He goes through a long list of sins he doesn't commit. And, or even like, again, I will see the thumb coming out. Even like this tax collector over here. I'm better than this guy. Well, of course, as Jesus said, he had the wrong attitude. But the Pharisee thought he didn't need grace. Because remember, grace is undeserved. It's undeserved. We don't earn salvation. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all, now by the way, who wrote this? By inspiration, the prophet. The prophet. The prophet here says, actually, go back to verse 5. It says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Isaiah 64, 5. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. Who's that we? That's the prophet Isaiah and everybody else. We have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need, we again, we need to be saved. But we, verse 6, are all. So again, that would include the prophet of God, Isaiah. We are all, he says, like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Or ESV, if you're reading that one, a polluted garment. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, says the ESV here. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So, now, I want to repeat that statement about how you're good enough. You and I are good enough. Our righteous deeds, we just deserve heaven. If anybody deserves heaven, it's got to be us. Isaiah, by inspiration, said that his righteousness, and ours too, is like filthy rags. The best we can do is nowhere close to being good enough. That's one of the reasons why I encourage people to read through the Old Testament. I'm talking about, say, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. One of the things those four books points out is God is holy over and over again. Those books point out that God is holy, and we are not. Just how difficult it is. Thankfully, we have the blood of Christ. More on that in just a few moments. But just how hard it is for sinless, polluted, unrighteous, filthy people like us to approach a holy God. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, where we were. I'll read these two verses again, this time English Standard. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, filthy rags are not satisfactory, and the works of man are not satisfactory. Now, what, is, what do people say? Well, yeah, I sin. I couldn't help it. Sometimes literally with the struggle of the children. Okay, it's just my nature. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you heard that statement? It's just my nature. It's just human nature. Well, they're not wrong that it is human nature, but we are supposed to have a better nature than that. We as Christians are supposed to be, and we'll read that in just a moment, partakers of a divine nature. Turn over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're supposed to be partakers of a better nature than that. It's, it's true. That is human nature, but the human nature is sinful. The human nature is repeatedly condemned in the scriptures. But 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. I'll read this one from the English Standard. It's a bit, it's a bit clearer. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, yeah, it's human nature. Yes, it is human nature. But we should be better than that. We need to become partakers of the divine nature. We keep going here in verse 4. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of, because of sinful desire. New King James, King James say lust. Because of sinful desire or lust. Verse 5. For this very reason, make, make every effort, or with all diligence in some versions, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities, these things, these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things we should want during the holiday season and every other season. Verse one more verse, verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Have we forgotten that? Have we forgotten verse nine? Have we forgotten that we were cleansed from our, from our old sins? Too many people do. Too many people have well this attitude of well self righteousness. Well, God has to save me, doesn't he? He owes me that. No, he doesn't. God doesn't owe us anything. He does what he did what he did because, well, he loves us. Because he loves us. But most people do not want to admit that. I mean, that's why we get holiday feel-good movies about doing good deeds and such. And of course, you know, we, we read, should, does this mean we shouldn't do good deeds? No. We read there, we we're created for good works. But why do we do these good works? You may have heard this before, but it benefits us to hear it again. We don't do these works to get saved. 
We do them because we are saved, because we have been saved by the blood of Christ, by nothing that we did. That's what kings, of course, in medieval Europe tried to do. They tried, you wonder why there's so many huge cathedrals all over Europe. I've never been there, but of course I've, I've studied quite a bit of a European and world history and all these huge cathedrals like the most famous one that partially burnt down, Notre Dame in Paris. Why do you suppose there are all these cathedrals all over Europe? Because kings and various rulers in Europe sought to more or less buy God's favor with it by building these things. If you give money to the church and the church gets to build this huge structure, well, that'll put you in better stead with God, won't it? That was the attitude anyway. And we've seen, what are those buildings in the grand scope of things? Back to Isaiah 64, they're filthy. They're not, a, they, you could build the, the largest tower of Babel in the world to God, but if you don't follow after his teachings, if Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you don't do what he says, you wasted all that effort. Because what's gonna to happen to Notre Dame and all the grand cathedrals of Europe and, and elsewhere one day, of course, along with the rest of the world, they will be burned up. But most people do not want to admit that, how filthy human righteousness is. I'll show you proof. Now this, we, we use the same song book. Well, I mean, it's a Tridelphia, we also use sacred selections. But if you've ever been in a, I'm not condemning these people, I mean, you have different congregations have access to different books, but uh, if you've ever been in a congregation where they use different books, newer books, a lot of them change the words a bit. They change the words to certain songs. For example, uh, that the song that says, Alas, did my Savior bleed? What well, says, the original version says, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, who here's a worm? You should all actually all have your hands up. Because we are. I mean, again, back to Isaiah, one of the passages. But what do you suppose they changed it to? They mean the publishers. Thank you. Would he devote, you look it up, would he devote that sacred head for such a one, O-N-E, one as I? People don't like to think of themselves as lowly worms, so the song's been modified. Because some people don't think of sin as sin anymore, if it's their sin. If it's somebody else's sin, oh yes, then it's a sin. But in the minds of some people, they should sing the most famous song, and I'm going to close my song point to anyone in particular. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. Sorry, Nina. Like you. <laughs> that saved a wretch like you. Essentially, that's what they think. Not a wretch like me. I pointed to you already, right, so I'll point, to, I'll point to the other guy who shares my name. It, it's, it's just, you know, that's what's going to happen to you. So, you know, saved a wretch like you. You have the cardinal sin of having the same name as me. But anyway, not really, of course. More seriously, though. You think, well, my sins aren't really all that serious. You know, I was baptized 20 years ago. That's wonderful. I go, I go to church, you hear that. I go to church every Christmas and Easter. Like little Jack Horner, you might have heard those. Like little Jack Horner, what a good boy am I. Well, to be dead serious now, no one is entitled to heaven. Not one of us. Not even Isaiah. Let's pick on him. 
not even the prophet Isaiah. We are not good enough. We never will be good enough. We never could be good enough on our own. That's why we need God's grace. You don't think so? Here's one more passage about that. Was what we were in Second Peter. Turn over to the next book to First John. First John, chapter one, verse five. First John one five. I'll read this in the English Standard. It says, "This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie." and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, now we includes John, the apostle John. So if we say we have no sin, and notice he says that in the present tense. If we have no sin right now, in other words, if we say we have no sin, then what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. I trust we all want the truth to be in us. So we need to, well, say, admit it. We have sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, verse 10, we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Because he says we've sinned, of course. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's a strong, of course, inspired statement. We sin. We continue to sin. We continue to sin. But that's the bad news. The good news, of course, is we have grace. Now, this is the time of year when I haven't quite done with I'm not quite done with mine yet. Maybe you uh, started yours. If you haven't, well, tick tock. The clock is ticking. Chopping time. Holiday shopping. Fun. Long lines. But many people go shopping for gifts and they charge items on their credit cards. The items do not have to be paid for until the bill comes. And it is frighteningly easy to rack up huge charges on said credit card. I know a lot of schools, like when I went back to Kent State and probably Bowling Green too, they don't take anything but, but charge cards. And so, uh, oops, you can quickly run up a charge that you didn't plan on. This is called the grace period though. The period between when you walked out of the store with the food, with the item, whatever, and the time when the bill comes due. That's, that, that's the grace period. That's what they call it, the grace period. All the details about how long this lasts and how much interest and so on will be included with your credit card when it's issued. You can walk out of that store, the Good Feet store, wearing the new shoes. I don't shop at Good Feet, I just picked on it because it's on, on TV. So you can walk out of the Good Feet store with your new shoes or drive off from the fire stone with your, on your new tires. But the day is coming when you're gonna to have to pay for those. There'll be an accounting. Then it'll be time to start paying. Now apply this idea spiritually. What's our grace period spiritually? We're living it. Our lives are the grace period. We keep adding, if you will, to the debt we owe for our sins. Paul puts it very plainly in Romans when he says the wages of sin is death. Unlike credit card companies, we should be thankful for this. We don't get periodic statements sent down from God telling us how much the debt is that we owe. That's indeed grace because there's no way we could begin to pay for any of it. 
This, it's not in this book. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. And so we all, each one of us, owes a debt that we cannot pay. For the sins we commit. There's no way we can begin to pay for one sin, let alone all sorts of sins. And sin is sin. You say, well, I don't commit any of the big sins. You'll have it. This idea between big sins and little sins is not in the Bible. That's a long story, but you know, if you read, uh, and I had to in college, medieval literature with Dante's Inferno, where he 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 assigns there are seven layers of hell, and each layer gets a different punishment for different. Sins. That's not in the Bible. That's medieval literature, but it's had a big influence on people's thinking. That certain sins are worse than other sins. The Bible makes no such distinction. Sin is sin. Paul says the wages of it is death. So. Uh, everybody, every day, have you sinned today? Who, who here uh, hasn't sinned today? I am not seeing any hands, and that is a good thing. Because every day, everyone commits a sin, a slip of the tongue, an impure thought, a lie, neglecting to pray or praise. Maybe you left, you know, you left later than you should have, and you had to drive too fast to get someplace. That's a long list, though. Sin is sin. Or what we what we read this morning, right there in James chapter 4. Did you know the right thing to do? The last verse. Did you know the right thing to do, and you just didn't do it? Maybe it's not something you did. Maybe it's something or some, or some thought or some word you didn't do, you didn't say. At the final judgment, Christians will enjoy the truth that God's grace period for them is eternal. The blood Jesus shed on the cross paid it all. To quote another song in the book, Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. For those who accept him and live with him as Lord, his grace is sufficient. So we should be grateful for that and know that we have we need all kinds of things for the Christmas season, but we need grace most of all. One last reference will wrap our thoughts up here. So we say, uh, we read that in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace we have been saved. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. What about those who don't think they need grace or who reject this grace? Those who think they're good enough on their own. There are all kinds of teachers out there who will mix in. That's one of the, one of the many reasons to read the Old Testament. Is it's a very fertile ground for a lot of false teachers to mix in bits and chunks of the Old Testament. Various very highly selectively quoted passages from the Old Testament and stick them in the New Testament and say, well, this is what God's word says. And they take it out of context. So we need to be familiar with God's word and follow it. So what about us and what about anyone who rejects grace? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. It says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law, the Old Testament, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy, will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, that's Christ's blood, by which he was sanctified a common thing, or he has profaned the blood of the covenant. He has profaned Christ's blood, the English Standard Version. In other words, you've taken something holy, the blood of Christ, and you have corrupted it. You've done your best anyway to corrupt it by your conduct or by your refusal to accept it. 
and insulted, finish the verse, insulted the spirit of grace. Does anyone, uh, anyone of us want to be guilty of any of that? For we know him who said, verse 30, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing, some versions say a terrible thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. So in closing, let's not do that. Let's not fall into the hands of the living God in that sense. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, let's walk, quote another Psalm 149, hand in hand with Jesus. Let's not try to gain heaven by our works. Now, this is the time of year, of course, when people do good deeds and such. It's a charity season. People do these things. Now, let's, uh, I'm not condemning that, certainly. We read how we're created for good works. Let's do good, and let's do it for the right reasons, as we said this morning in Bible study. But let's also keep in mind that we can't earn salvation. We need to know that our, righteous, our, our righteousnesses, if you will, are inadequate, and the wages of sin are death. Let's do our best to follow after Christ and receive his gracious gift of salvation. Now, how do we do that, of course? We hear and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We confess our faith in him before men. We repent of our sins and put him on in baptism. And if you've done all that, then what? Then you need to continue to live in the way he's commanded for you to live, the way he's commanded for us to live, remembering that we can't earn it on our own. We need to be grateful for God's grace, realize that we need God's grace, and live to the very best of our ability so that we continue to experience the benefits of God's grace. So if you've never put, you've never experienced that, you've never put on Christ in baptism, we're giving you a chance to do that now. And if you have done that, but you're not living in God's grace, you're not living as you should, is anything you need, we make it right now, we can pray with you and for you, anything you have, make it known as we stand to sing the song. We walk with the Lord.